We are in our fourth installment in this series uh, called Father, Son, and the Other One. And uh, today's title of my message today is Spirit Gifted Love Machines. What in the world is that? I told my wife, that's the title. She said, what in the world does that mean? So there's a little intrigue, a little mystery there. And uh, we're going to solve it today. Uh, that is actually the title of one of, my book, uh, one of my book chapters. And it's the title right after the... the um, chapter on becoming spiritually gifted or finding your spiritual gifts. So we covered that to some degree last week, talked about how you find your your gifts for ministry. This week, we're going to talk about what is just necessary in order to operate your spiritual gifts, which is to operate them in an atmosphere, a mutual environment of love. My brother and I, when we were kids, we grew up in uh, Goochland, Virginia, and we lived for the first 10 or 12 years of our life in this rural part of Virginia and so we were constantly out in the woods playing and doing stuff. And, and I got in trouble a lot because I set a lot of fires and burned the forest down and all this kind of stuff. And uh, so I was really a rabble rouser. And my brother decided, we woke up one Saturday morning and uh, the entire woods next to our house had been clear cut. They were doing some power lines because they were going to build some houses way in the back. We didn't even know it. So we got up one morning and found on the side of this clear-cut path were all of these freshly cut logs. And we decided, well, what are we going to do with those? <laughs> we better think of something. And so we decided to build an awesome fort. How many of you guys have ever built an awesome fort? Your fort was not nearly as awesome as this one. <laughs> we built, my brother, we got our daddy's uh, hatchet and his, uh, his axe out. And we dragged all day long, we dragged these logs off into the woods, this little uh, clearing area, and we cut notches in each of the ends of them, and we started to build this fort cabin. An awesome, awesome 10 by 10 log fort cabin. Once we got it to about this high, when we could lift the logs up and put them on there, uh, we couldn't get any higher, so we got my dad's old rusty scaffolding and drug it out there. We built that thing to about seven feet high. And then we built a little thatch roof on top of it. We put a bunch of uh, sticks and stuff and branches and brush. And we put a more uh, crossing, you know, sort of a lattice and built a little thatch roof. And we stepped back from this thing and looked at this monument to our ingenuity. And we thought to ourselves, this is amazing. This is the most awesome fort. But it was missing something. It didn't have a door. So we couldn't actually play in the fort. So we put our heads together, two geniuses at work here, and we decided to go get daddy's shovels, and we dug a hole door. <laughs> so the front of this thing had this giant trench going up underneath it where there was literally no ground. And we got up inside of this thing, and we just sat there for hours doing nothing, just talking about how awesome we were. And so it was time to go in. About this time, it was getting dark, and we went in and uh, went to bed and got up the next morning, went next door, and got our best friend because we were going to take him down to show him this monument to our awesomeness. And we took him down there, and right where we had been playing for hours, sitting there talking about how cool we were, there was about, I estimate, about 600 to 800 pounds of logs just sort of crashed down in there where we were playing. I mean, just an unbelievable crash. Well, we went and told our dad, and he came out and looked at it and said, that's him smoking. He always was smoking. And he said, uh, well, 
you got to build it on the right foundation. So the ground that we had built it on looked like this. And we dug a hole door, which undermined the, the foundation even more. So my dad taught us a more excellent way. And that is precisely what Paul wants to do with the Corinthians. The Corinthian Christians, if you have your Bible, you can open to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and 13 and 14. Those are the uh, chapters in which he covers spiritual gifts and the principle of love. And Paul wants to do the same thing for them. He says, now, it's great that you have a bunch of great spiritual gifts. That's awesome. But I want to show you a more excellent way. I want to show you the way of love. And we're going to unpack that today. You know, to this day, I still have a fascination with building stuff, though I am not very good at it. Plus, all my tools are whack anyway. If you come over to my house and look at my garage, you'll see I'm the typical guy. I'm not like Matt. I don't have all this real cool stuff. I'm, I'm the typical guy who just has like a pegboard with some odd screwdrivers and pliers, just stuff I've picked up over the years. My, my, my tool collection is so whack. And so it would be no surprise to you that I would go to Home Depot and Lowe's and just stand there in the aisles and just drool over all the cool stuff that I don't have. I, I literally actually do do this. You could probably find me uh, some security camera footage of me just standing there like a you know, zombie looking at all this wonderful tools that I don't have. And, uh, you know, I've often been tempted to buy some power tools, but something in the back of my mind, that I have this little compartment in my brain. I call it the redneck zone. And before I buy a power saw, this redneck zone kicks in and says, you don't need that $100 tool. All you need is some duct tape and some chicken wire, boy. You can fix it. But I look at these tools like they're works of art. I troll the aisles like I'm some sophisticated metrosexual in a fine New York art gallery. You know, I just... But they're not works of art. Tools are different than art. Art was meant to be appreciated for its aesthetic value. It was meant to be appreciated and looked at. But tools are not that way. Tools were not to be meant to be looked at. Tools were made to help you make something. They weren't meant to be observed or appreciated for their own sake. And that's the way spiritual gifts are. But the Corinthians had messed it up. They thought that they were supposed to be appreciated for their own sake. And they were very excited about their spectacular supernatural gifts. And they were very excited about their superheroes. And this came from their Corinthian culture. A little bit of history on uh, Corinth um, there was a hero worship culture in Corinth. And this seeped into their church experience. Paul had to say, you know what? You guys are awfully excited about the super apostles. He calls them huper apostolos, the super apostles in your midst. And some of you are waving banners and flags in favor of Paul and some in favor of Cephas or Peter and some in favor of Apollos. But I'm here to tell you there are no heroes in the body of Christ other than Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul wanted to correct in them. They also had a very charismatic culture. Well, every cult under the sun practiced ecstatic charismatic gifts, ecstatic prophecy. And uh, in addition to that, there was rampant sexual sin in Corinth. Corinth was the home of what's called the uh, Temple to Aphrodite. It was on the Acrocorinth. And uh, so what was happening with these guys in church is that they were walking up this hill and they were going to these uh, temple prostitutes before they came to the church meeting. And Paul was saying, don't do that. <laughs> Super bad idea. <clears throat> so even though the Corinthians had broken with Corinthian culture, an inordinate amount of Corinth was yet in them. 
That's what Paul has to tell them. It's great that you have spiritual gifts. Chapter 12, verse 1, he says, awesome. Spiritual gifts are good. I don't want you to be ignorant about them. He says, you should find out what they are. You should eagerly desire, he says, the greater gifts. But none of those gifts is of any good. Your gifts, your passions, your talents, the stuff we talked about last week, doesn't work unless the church is united in love. This overriding principle, what I'm going to share with you today, these principles are the most important things you can know about Christianity other than the gospel itself. So let's talk about that. In 1 Corinthians 14.1, here's how he sums it up. 1 Corinthians 14.1, he says this, follow the way of love and earnestly, eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, the tools of the Spirit. So you should want both. You should want the tools to build the kingdom with because you need them, but you should follow the way of love. The foundation of the church's experience is supposed to be an atmosphere of love, love for God and love for others. So let's unpack that today. It all starts with passionate love for God. And how do you get this passionate love for God? Number one, here's how you get it. Love is very simply this. Love is the byproduct of proximity. I'll say it again. Love is the byproduct of proximity. What does that mean? Well, it's pretty simple, actually. Your capacity for loving God, your capacity for loving God is directly proportional. It is directly proportional to your nearness to God. I'll say it again. Your capacity for love for God is directly tied, proportional to how close you are to him. Love has to do with proximity. It's hard to carry on a long-distance romance. How many of you guys have tried that? That's tough, isn't it? Eventually, it's not going to work out. I mentioned last week that my kids love playing uh, little games with me. Um, They love to play Quicksand Monster. Quicksand Monster is actually my favorite game because it doesn't really require me to do very much. I don't have to, you know, I don't have to run around. All I have to do is lay on the floor. And they run across the living room trying to run across the quicksand pit. And I'm the quicksand monster. And I will grab one of them and pull him into the bog. And his, and it, I'm telling you, it's an automatic screaming giggle fest. The rest of them will try to grab that kid and pull him out. But the ones who try to rescue, they get pulled in by the quicksand monster. Love that game. They love to play this game we call Tickle Tackle. That is a scream and giggle fest too. Now, if I went to Walmart or Toys R Us and I bought the most expensive kid game they have, I mean, I brought it home, $90 game, put it home on the coffee table, and it has pictures of these happy, smiling kids who look like they're just having a blast. And I put that on the coffee table and I said, okay, kids, I bought you a new game. They'd be like, yay. And I, and I would say, okay, would you rather play that or would you rather play Quicksand Monster? They would go, Quicksand Monster! Why do you think they would make that choice? Because, yeah, right, quicksand monster involves me. It involves more than me. It involves them uh, really sort of breaking my back. Actually, they're getting bigger now, and it's starting to hurt. But it involves them wrestling around on the floor with me, touching me, grabbing me, squeezing me, and trying to tickle me. You see, my kids don't love me because I walk in the door and drop my computer bag and announce through the house, children, thy father is home, thou shalt commence loving me. (laughs) That's not why they love me. 
My kids love me because I drop my bag and then drop down to my knees and they just tackle me. They pile on me because they can touch me and they can feel me. And loving a parent is natural. You don't have to try and love God. Have you ever tried to love God? Lord, I'm trying to love you. Don't try to love him. Stop trying. Just get near him. Just come near the Lord. Because loving has to do with proximity. The closer you are to, the, to him, the more he will grab you and draw you into the bog of his presence. And he will love on you. He will love you. And you'll never, never be loved like you will be loved by your God. Because he's your daddy. Jesus called him Abba, which means daddy. And he told you to call him that too. So how do we develop what C.S. Lewis calls this passionate appetite for God? How do we develop a passionate appetite for God? We develop a passionate appetite for God as we loiter in his presence. Let me ask you something. Are you a thrifty worshiper? Are you just a, some good church folk who are on a tight schedule and you got better things to do? So God can get an hour of your time. But what else does he get of you? How much more of God do you want? Because if you want more God, you got to draw closer to God. And that takes some time. That takes time. God doesn't want to be an entry in our schedule. How would my wife like it if I said, you know what, Carrie, here's the time that I have for you this week. On Tuesday evening, I have between 6.30 and 7.30. And on Friday evening, I have between uh, 8 and 9. And that's all the time I have for you this week. Do you think my marriage would last? Probably wouldn't last a year. My wife needs more time for me. She doesn't want to just be an entry in my schedule. My wife wants to be this focal point of my passions. And that's what keeps our love alive. And God wants the same thing from you, my friend. God wants to be the focal point of your passions. Not just an entry on your schedule. If you're a visitor here today, you're off the hook to a certain degree. If you're visiting with us today or you've been around here for a few weeks and you're thinking to yourself, I don't get it, I'm sorry. You guys look weird to me. All this singing to God, it's just weird. I've had friends tell me that. They come in and they go, what's, what's it all about? Why are the wrapped and rumpled worshipers so fixated on singing to their God and listening to his voice through the word? My friend, it's because we have discovered the secret to life. It is because we have discovered the secret to passionate devotion to God, and it is excessive loitering at the feet of the master. That's why. And we have been touched by him, and we want some more. We can't get enough of it. We can't get enough. Mary and Martha is the best illustration of this. Remember that story in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus is, uh, he comes and he visits uh, the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And the two sisters, Mary and Martha, they, they, get, they get busy preparing a meal for the 12, the entourage, Jesus' disciples. But Mary slips into the living room and sits at the feet of Jesus, which women were not allowed to do with rabbis. They were not allowed to sit at the feet of the rabbi. But she does, and Jesus lets her. Now Martha, the older sister, she's spun out by this. She says, oh, Jesus, do you think you could send the woman in to help the other woman? <laughs> and Jesus says, hold on now, Martha. The meal is important. 
But what your sister has chosen is the, more, is the thing that's most important. And that is to be at my feet. You see, disciples have learned how to love God. They sit at his feet. They listen to his voice. They hear him speak into their lives. You don't have to try to love God. All you have to do is get near him. And God's love will pull you in. So how do you do that? Well, you do it through his word. You do it by listening to his voice. Keep his voice ringing in your ears because God mediates his presence through his sacred word. You need to fill your heart and mind with it. You also need to practice, step out in faith and practice some passionate worship. Oh, we got a great sermon uh, next week. It's gonna be really fun, that message next week. We're gonna talk about this, but in a nutshell, what we need to do is come into the presence of God and worship him with abandon. And for you, worshiping with abandon might actually just be standing there and singing. That's your next step, and that's fine. You're okay. For some of you, you've been singing for a while, and you just kind of need to do this. You need to take another step toward your God. Move a little bit closer, because your God wants to pull you in. In prayer. Have you ever taken a prayer walk? Man, I did that last, last Monday. I sat down to prepare my message for this weekend, and God interrupted me. I love that when the Lord does that. It's like, Lord, you're on my schedule between nine and uh, three today. And the Lord interrupted me. And he started flooding my mind and flooding my heart. And I was so full of God, by the end of the day, I had no message. <laughs> I had not prepared a message, but I was full of God because I needed to take a walk. I needed to walk in the cool of the garden as Adam did with my God. And that's what prayer is all about. It is that loving interaction between the man and his God, and the woman and her God. So the first principle of love is this. You want to love God more? Get closer to God. Walk with him. Come on. Number two, second principle is this. Love first, understand as you go. That's the second principle. Love first and understand as you go. Philippians 1.9 says this. Paul said, I pray that you will abound, overflow, spill over in love toward others as you grow in your knowledge and depth of insight. Now, that's a spiritual growth principle. The more you grow in knowledge and depth of insight of God, well, the more your love for others and the love for God will spill over. It will flow in abundance. That's true. But you actually don't need much knowledge and much insight to get going. You actually need just a minimal threshold of knowledge and, and insight. The John 3.16 of the Old Testament is this passage called Deuteronomy 6.4. Every one of you should quote it and uh, memorize it so you can quote it. Every Jew has this memorized. It's called the Shema of Israel. It's their national scripture. And it goes like this. Shema Israel, Yahweh Elohinu, Yahweh Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. The Jews in Jesus' day would drop whatever they were doing three times a day and pray that toward Jerusalem. That was their national anthem. Deuteronomy 6.4. But there's a curious thing in there, in that love command. And here's what it is. It says that the Lord our God is one, Echad, one Lord. Now that's just not about arithmetic. That's not just numerically one. That is one in uniqueness. It means one, there is no other. He's the one who is as opposed to the ones who are not. That's what it means. 
It means there is no other being and nothing else in creation like him. And this is why they were not allowed, according to Exodus 20, to create a graven statue or image of their God because there is no image that will suffice. There is nothing in the created order, nothing, nothing that is a proper analogy for this transcendent God who is not a product of this creation. This God who exists outside of it. This God who existed before he made it. There's nothing in our world that's a proper analogy for him, a proper analog. And so God says, don't create graven images of me. Not because he doesn't like symbolism, but because God, there's nothing that looks like God. You see, there are many things about God's nature because he is other, because he is something else, man, that you're never going to understand. Are there some things about God that you don't understand? What are they? I'll tell you one thing I don't understand, this whole idea of the Trinity. Now, I believe it. The Bible teaches it. But I don't understand how one God could be eternally one God in three separate persons. Not three separate modes, but three separate persons, distinct from each other, but one God. I believe that doctrine. I don't understand it. I don't understand how God could know everything. Do you understand that? Because I don't. I don't get that. There are a lot of things about God's nature that are, will forever be a mystery to me. But just because I don't understand them does not mean that I cannot apprehend God. You can apprehend God before you comprehend God. You can encounter him and know him before you have solved all the theological mysteries that you want to solve. And if you're waiting to solve the theological mysteries, you will never know God. Because you can't solve them all anyway. By way of example, my little kids are so cute, man. They, uh, they ask me questions about what I do all the time. And it's so hard to explain, you know, like when I'm grading papers, a stack of papers, and my little six-year-old daughter, cute little pudgy girl, she gets up next to me and sits next to me and says, Daddy, what you doing? I say, baby, I'm grading a bunch of her research papers. She goes, what's a research paper? And I have to explain it. She doesn't understand the complexities of my world. The other night she did that, and she sat there and she said, you know what, Daddy? I said, what? She said, too much grading, not enough playing. That was her response to that. And she doesn't understand the complexities of my world, managing the things I manage and all the protocol that comes with adult responsibilities. She doesn't know how to pay taxes. She doesn't understand anything about that. Nothing. She doesn't even know how to order my favorite beverage, a grande, non-fat two-pump vanilla latte with cinnamon on top. I know I'm one of those annoying people. I apologize. <laughs> they may not understand the complexities of my adult existence, but that doesn't mean just because they can't, can't comprehend all of me doesn't mean they can't apprehend me. It doesn't mean they can't lay hold of me. It's like a baby in a crib. Remember the first time your daughter or your little, your little son grabbed your finger and he just held on to it? And they wouldn't let it go. And there was this bond that happened between you and that precious little baby. Remember that? Now, that baby knows nothing about your existence. The, the only world he knows is right here. But you and I can lay hold of God. We can experience him in real time before you understand all the theological complexities of his existence. And that's principle number two of love. And the principle number three is this. Genuine love for God produces love for God's image. People, that's number three. If you have genuine love for God, that should produce genuine love for God's image. People, 
Love for God should always result in a greater love for the people around you. And if the tenor of your life, if the trajectory of your life is less love for the people around you, then you are not loving God. I don't care how religious you are. I don't care how much of the Bible you can quote. If the trajectory of your life is less love for the people you work with, less love for your wife, less love for your kids, less love for the people around you, then God is not number one. He's not the focal point of your passions. The Holy Spirit's job is to pour the love of God into us so he can pour the love of God out of us. Genuine love for God produces love for his people. When Jesus was questioned on this issue by a Torah student, the Torah student came up and said, <clears throat> he was He's going to test Jesus, right? Take on the master. Master's all right. Come on. And he stood up and the young man said, Master, good teacher, what is the greatest commandment in Moses' Torah? And the good master said, well, I'll tell you what. You look like a good student of Torah. Why don't you tell me? And what did he recite? Deuteronomy 6, 4, that one. He, Shema Israel, you know, he starts going off into the scripture and he quotes it. And, and Jesus says, okay, pitch perfect, son. That's good. That sounded good. But there's another commandment, and it's just like the first one. And here's how it goes. Love your neighbor the way you love yourself. Didn't say don't love yourself. He said love your neighbor the way you want to be loved, the way you love yourself. That is the second greatest commandment. When you love God with all your heart, soul, and strength, it results in love for God. Years ago, my neighbor she was a young teacher in her late 30s. She passed away, and she, her death was sudden, and it was very unexpected. She was a school teacher, and we had a good relationship with her. My little boys loved chasing her dogs around. This is before they had a dog. This was one of the reasons why I bought them a dog, because I felt so bad for them. But uh, they loved chasing her dogs up and down the street. They loved to sell her candy, and, and Lacey was her name. She always bought candy from my kids. I felt so bad for her because, you know, my kids were always peddling something from school, as I'm sure yours have too. But she always bought it. She always bought the cookies. She always bought something. And I, and I came home one night from work to blue and red lights just flashing in front of her house right next door to me. And I got out of my car and the police officer walked up and said, sir, are you the neighbor? I said, yeah. I said, what's going on? I thought somebody broke into Lacey's house. He said, I I'm sorry to tell you that Lacey has passed away. I said, what? He said, yes, she, she died in her sleep. They think it was uh, some kind of sickness. Well, it turns out it was H1N1. Remember that virus a couple of years ago that was sort of killing people? Well, it turns out it was H1N1. She died from complications of that. And I walked into my house, and all night I could not get Lacey off my mind. I laid in bed thinking, God, what were her last minutes like? Here I am laying in my comfortable, warm house, and she's laying over there. I didn't even know. I didn't even know she's struggling with sickness. She's on her death's door. And then I began, my mind really began to turn, man. My gears began to spin, and I began to think, when had I ever shared the gospel with Lacey? When had I ever shared the love of God with my neighbor? And I hadn't. In fact, I showed her the exact opposite. In the summer times, I was annoyed with her because she wouldn't mow her grass. And she never weeded it and fed it. It just looked like horrible. And every day, every week, I would come out and mow my grass and I'd mumble under my breath, why doesn't Lacey come out and mow her grass? 
And in the winters, when it was really snowy, I'd come out and I'd, I'd snow blow my runway and my driveway, and I'd think under my, I'd say under my breath, why didn't she ever shovel her snow? Why does she just leave it like that? And the Spirit convicted me because it never once occurred to me to love God by loving Lacey, by mowing her grass for her, or shoveling her snow for her. And now she was gone, and I didn't have a chance to do it. You got some neighbors like that? Well, after this experience, I became a better neighbor. I started mowing my neighbor's lawns. They'd come home and be like, what's going on with the, with the lawn? The, the young Mormon couple that moved in next door, God help those Mormons, they moved in next door <laughs> to me. That's awesome. <laughs> Poor kids. They moved in with their tiny little babies. They were the same age Carrie and I were when we moved into our house with our tiny little babies. And they had these cute little boys. And they moved in. They didn't own anything. He didn't have anything in his garage. I walked right over and I introduced myself. And I said, come on over to my garage, man. I walked him right over and I said, see that lawnmower right there? That's your lawnmower. Anytime you need to use it, it's yours. Matter of fact, here's a giant old bag of weed and feed. Let's go weed and feed your lawn. I became a better neighbor. When you hear that command from Jesus, love your neighbor as you love yourself, did you hear it the way I heard it? Because the way I heard it was like this. Blah, 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 blah. Because I heard a thousand sermons on it. But the sermon I needed to hear was that sermon with Lacey, my neighbor who died. Because now I hear it like this. Mow your neighbor's lawn as you would mow your own. Take care of your neighbor as you would yourself. Because you see, when you love God passionately, that love for God spills out into the lives of others. And if it doesn't, it's just kind of, I mean, what kind of love is it? You love the Lord, but God wants you to love those made in the Lord's image. I want to read you how Paul wraps this up for them. It's in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. I'm going to read you my paraphrase of it, though. The reason why I paraphrased it, it's in my book when it comes out in 2014, but the reason why I paraphrased it is because I was tired of reading it and not seeing it. Jesus said in Matthew 13, you are ever hearing but never perceiving. It's the overexposure of Bible study. So I rewrote it, and here's how I, I see it now. 1 Corinthians 13, here's his love passage. He says this, love is relentless. It won't give up. Love is selfless, thinks of others first. Love doesn't crave what love doesn't have. It doesn't strut or swagger. It doesn't vaunt itself as it on a stick or something special. Love isn't aggressive and bellicose. It's humble and easygoing. Love doesn't come unhinged when others are in the wrong. Love doesn't tally the sins of fellow believers, and it doesn't revel in the failure of rivals. Love celebrates truth, tolerates the intolerable, trusts when hope seems lost, assumes the best in people, and endures with unflinching commitment right to the bitter end. Love cannot fail. Loving God and loving people go hand in hand. And if we're going to be a spirit-gifted church, we need to be the, built on the foundation, the strong foundation of God's awesome, unmatched love. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. 
And Paul wanted these people in Corinth to know that loving God and loving people is their absolute highest priority, is the most profound, is profoundly simple and simply profound. It is the principle, the governing principle of the Christian life. And he wanted those spiritually gifted people to excel at their gifts, to find them and plug in and serve the body of Christ. And I hope you've been thinking about that since last week. But he also wanted them to know that they needed to be spiritually gifted love machines Spiritually gifted love machines. Let's pray. If you've never encountered the love of God before and you're sitting here and frankly your heart is cold and you've been visiting for a few weeks or maybe a while now but you've never ever tried to run across the floor and have your heavenly father grab you and pull you into the bog of his love into himself, his very self. Would you open your heart right now? Would you? Pray something like this with me. Heavenly Father, I'm not sure about all this. There's a lot of things I don't understand and I haven't worked out yet, but my heart is open right now. My heart is open to you and your love and I wanna experience it. And the scripture says you don't need to know a lot. You need to know this, that God created you because he's the creator, that you're a sinner far from God and that you are headed for a crisis eternity, but that he sent his one and only son to forgive us, to die for us and raise from the dead. And if you believe that, you'll be saved. So if you wanna believe that this morning, would you pray with me? God, I, I believe that this morning. I trust in Christ for my salvation. If you're doing that, the Holy Spirit is doing a work in you right now. Rebirth. If you're here and you're a believer, it might be that you never really tried to get in God's presence. You never tried to get near him, but today is your day. You're gonna make that decision. You, you say, Pastor Jeff, I want to come near. I want to draw near to God. The scriptures say, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And I wanna step out in faith. I wanna read his word and talk with him. I want to uh, sing and worship and encounter his presence because when you do, my friend, if you make that commitment today, you will encounter the love of God and it's a contagion. It's contagious. Would you make that commitment in your heart today? Make it in your own words. God, we commit ourselves to that. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for your attention for the last 30 minutes. We're gonna uh, take the offering this morning. That's one of the last ways we worship. We're gonna do it as we sing and make melody in our hearts. And can I ask you as, you, as you worship the Lord in those two ways at the end of this service, will you focus your mind on God? Will you begin to make him the focal point of your passions and your heart? Would you do that? Uh, let's pray and then we'll, uh, uh, let's sing and then we'll take the offering. Hey, listen, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, we have a new believers packet. Pick it up in the back room. Come down here. We'll have some prayer people. Tell them. Tell them about the decision you made. And one last, one final idea, guys. Listen, what if there was a church that was full of an army of spiritually gifted people who love their neighbors as they love themselves and passionately love God? That church would be an unstoppable force. Go be that church in your marriage and in your relationships and in your world this week. God bless you. Have a great week.